hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. In 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 20, verse 14 and fi- verses 14 and 15, we read this. We read, In the midst of the congregation, the Spirit of Yahweh came upon Jehaziel, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said this, Listen, thus says Yahweh to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours. But God's. There are a lot of verses about the battle belonging to the Lord, uh, but this one I really love. Uh, but I, because I think, as all of them do, this is a great reminder as we continue our Lenten journey through the wilderness with Christ, especially as we face our own trials and our own sufferings. We need to be reminded that we do not need to be afraid, for the battle is not ours, but it belongs. To the Lord. And so, if, as you can see, if you were to look down the rest of the page in your bulletin booklet and the next page, the text that we are going to look at for the next few weeks as we, finish, as we go through the rest of Lent will be all from the Psalter. And there is actually a very specific purpose for this, other than the fact that it is in the lectionary that way. Um, Lent, as we mentioned last week and even on Ash Wednesday, Lent is a season where we more intensely participate in the spiritual disciplines, particularly the disciplines of prayer and repentance and contemplating or meditating upon Scripture. And in the Psalms, the Psalms allow us to actually participate in all of those different disciplines at the same time. But it also, they also allow us to apply the, an ancient Christian practice known as Lectio Divina, or what's also referred to as the Divine Reading. Now, throughout history of the church, the church has understood Lectio Divina or divine reading as as Scripture is not only something to be studied, but something to be lived in. Because Scripture, as the author of Hebrews reminds us, is living and it is active. So through divine reading or Lectio Divina, we live within Scripture and we live within it Christologically. That's the other aspect behind divine reading. So meaning that all of Scripture has Christ-focused lenses that focus on his incarnation and in his work of salvation, in his work through his bride, the church, by the pouring out of the Spirit, as well as his return in power and glory. And here's what's interesting. You may not have picked up on this. Maybe you have. We already have the habit of doing this in our regular weekly worship time, especially as it relates to the Psalms. Now, thanks to Connor's work and the work of our our musicians, we regularly sing the psalms 
which we did this morning, as well as read them aloud in our weekly worship time, whether they be the text for the sermon or not. So, as we make our way through the rest of Lent, my goal then is for us to kind of extend our our current practice of divine reading by including the sermon time and looking at these psalms as a way of aiding our Lenten disciplines of prayer and meditation upon the scriptures. So there's your caveat for the next four weeks, right? Today and then the next three weeks after us. So before we begin, though, what I want to do this morning, before we look at a few details in, in this passage, let's point out a few themes that really stand out as we read through it. Because these themes will actually help us understand the details, but it will also help us understand the passage as we pray it and we meditate upon it throughout the rest of the week. So notice, and I'm going to read through the whole text again in a moment, but, but I don't know if you noticed this, but through a simple read-through, the psalmist makes use of consistent repetition. Now this is a key quality of many of the psalms, but it is definitely a key quality of all of the four psalms that we'll look at through the rest of Lent. Now, last week, when we were considering Matthew 4 and the temptation of Jesus, I made a comment early on that I have long been a proponent of purposeful repetition. And that is what the Psalms do. So, for us, whether that be in looking at a same text over and over or celebrating the same events in the life of the Lord Jesus, or purposefully repeating words or phrases or ideas, they are all done in order to draw our attention to spiritual truths. Now, for the Hebrew language especially, now it may be the case with Greek, but I know this for sure with Hebrew, there is, a, there, is, there is a grammatical purpose for repetition, and it basically comes down to the fact that Hebrew doesn't have the punctuation that we're used to in English. Right? Now, the Masoretics added some in in the 600s, but that's not the point. point is is that Hebrew uses repetition in order to draw the reader's eyes or the hearer's ears to specific purposes within a passage. So if you're doing your daily Bible reading in the Old Testament and you're getting irritated that you're reading the same stuff over and over and over again, it's not a typo in the translation. It's for a specific purpose of drawing your eye to it or your ear to it if you're hearing it. So there is your biblical hermeneutics lesson for the day, right? Or your biblical languages lesson for the day, right? But... But for our psalm this morning, Psalm 121, pay attention. I'm going to read through it again. Pay attention to the repetition of either words or ideas or themes in just these eight short verses. And then I'm going to point out a few, and then we'll look at some details. So here again, the word of the Lord from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So did you pick up on some repetition? Right? Some, some repeated words or themes or phrases, right? So, so just looking at verses 1 and 2, which are those first two sentences there in your bulletin. The psalmist, you already get the, the, the feeling that he is, he's seeking for help, right? He even asks the question, from where does my help come? And he repeats this, this desire twice in these first two verses. So not only is he desiring help, but help is actually needed. 
Now, for us, help is needed for us to complete our Lenten journey with Christ through the wilderness that is Lent, as well as help to arrive with him at the destination of the cross and the resurrection. We need help to know Christ. So, and this is not a simple assistance that the psalmist is asking for. This is desperate divine assistance that he's looking for. Because as we discussed last week, the wilderness is a place that is fraught with danger. Because the wilderness is a place of testing, and it's a place of temptation. The wilderness, again, as we saw last week, is a place where the demonic dwells. But the wilderness is also a place of God's comfort, comforting presence and his leading. So as we look here in these first two verses, crying out to God's help as we journey through the Lenten wilderness reminds us that we do not endure, nor were we ever meant to endure temptation and testing alone. We need help, and we need a helper. So then is it any wonder that Jesus calls the Holy Spirit not only another advocate, but another helper in some translations? But repetition is also present through the rest of the psalm. So just looking at the rest of the passage there, we see, we see a lot. We see Yahweh being repeated a lot, but we also see the work of keeping or keeper being repeated quite a bit. It's repeated six times in these six verses. So interestingly, though, this repetition is also, for those that are interested in this part, or this repetition is actually chiastic in structure. So if you'll recall from a few weeks ago, we were looking at the Beatitudes. I defined this, but I'll define it again in case you don't. A chiasm is simply a literary device that Scripture uses to help us kind of see a point, right? And it kind of looks somewhat like a staircase going up and down. Right? So it not only helps draw our attention to a particular focus in a passage, but a chiasm helps actually to aid us in meditation and memorization of Scripture. So here we read just in verse 3, and again, we'll look at all of these in detail in a moment. Yahweh is who, the one who keeps us individually. The you there is a singular personal pronoun. But then in verse 4, we see it is Yahweh who keeps Israel as his covenant nation corporately. And then verses 5 and 6, he does it again by being our personal keeper and protector. So this chiasm shows that Yahweh is concerned with keeping and protecting both the whole, so the nation, the church, his bride, as well as keeping and protecting the individual, the individual sheep who make up the whole flock. Reminding us that Yahweh protects and blesses his own, while also telling us that his protection is really the main focus of the entire psalm. So moving beyond repetition, and then we will dig into details, I want to look at one more theme here. There is an implied theme that, that I noticed as I was studying this psalm, and so it's one that I'd like to take note of because I think it's important. So all throughout the psalm, the psalmist makes an indirect reference to the posture of the worshiper. So just looking again at the first two sentences there in your bulletin, in verses 1 and 2, the posture of the worshiper is one of desperation and anxiety while also being a posture of hope. You see, he writes, I lift up my eyes to the hills. You, you have this posture almost of, I'm traveling and I see the mountainous ranges around me. Where is my help going to come from? The place is dangerous. I'm desperate. I'm anxious. I'm stressed. But I also know that it is a place of hope because my help comes from the Lord. So this psalm, in, if you were looking in your Bibles, it says that the psalm is actually a psalm of ascent or 
are, as our Orthodox friends call them, a gradual psalm is another term that they have for them. Meaning that this psalm is, a, is one that is sung by pilgrims as they journeyed on their way to Jerusalem for the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread and the feast of first fruits, all three of which take place within the period of just a few days of each other, and all three of which, which were fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because remember, for us, Lent is preparing us to celebrate the resurrection. And so during our Lenten observance of fasting and praying and repentance and meditating on Scripture, our posture becomes one of desperation, looking to the horizon for a Savior to come and to deliver us. So while this may be a psalm of ascent, it is also a psalm for exile, meaning as we regularly look and await the Redeemer, our posture is also one of hope and assurance because it is Yahweh that will deliver us. But the inverse of that posture of, of desperation and anxiety is also true throughout the rest of the psalm because our posture then becomes a posture of rest or dependence as you look through verses 3 through 8. It becomes a, a posture of rest and dependence upon God who is our keeper. And as we read here, it is God who keeps our feet from slipping. God who keeps his people who shades us from destruction, who protects us from evil, and who protects our going in and our coming out. Or our going out and our coming in, or whatever you want to... Uh, I'm looking at my notes and not at the bulletin. But, but doing so both in life and in death. So these themes, again, of repetition and posture are, are important to keep in mind because what they do is they help us to shed light on the details or the particular words and phrases that are in these eight verses. So let's figure out the details by, I want to ask two questions of this passage while we try to understand the details. So the first question that we will ask and, and answer through verses 1 and 2 is this. From where and from whom does our help come? We'll, answer, we'll ask and answer that in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 8, we will ask this question. In what form does our help come? Now again, we've already alluded to these by looking at the themes, but again, how they apply to the details will aid us as we meditate on this psalm throughout the rest of the week and hopefully throughout the rest of the season of Lent. So, first then, in verses 1 and 2, out of a posture of desperation, a posture of anxiety and hope, again, as we fast and we pray and we repent and we meditate on Scripture through Lent, from where and from whom does our help come? The psalmist tells us our help comes from the hills and from Yahweh who made heaven and earth. So again, as a psalm of ascent, the psalm, again, would have been sung by pilgrims as they were making their way to Jerusalem and to the temple, which sits atop a quote-unquote hill of, the Mount, of Mount Zion. So picture, if you will, right, to, to channel Sophia from the Golden Girls, right? Picture it, right? Jerusalem, first century. You see pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. They've been walking for a few days now. They're covered in dirt and dust. They're dirty. They're tired. They're probably a little hungry, right? Because they, they packed food for the trip, but you know that they've, they're probably running low now as they see the mountain getting closer to them. And as they set out on their journey towards Jerusalem and towards the holy city, in order to be obedient to the law and obedient to worship and offer sacrifice to Yahweh as he had commanded them, they knew that the paths that they were about to walk, the highways that they were about to walk upon, 
would be fraught with perils such as robbers, possibly murderers, wild animals. And because Jerusalem and Mount Zion are settled within the hill country, those paths also contain perils of slippery slopes, of steep cliffs, probably loose rocks where you can turn an ankle or, heaven forbid, cause a rock slide that will cover somebody else. There's perils along the way. And so in such a perilous place, why then, why would a psalmist look at this and go, I need to look for help, I need to look to the hills for help. Why would you look for help in such a perilous place? Remember, a few weeks ago, when we began Epiphany, we, we discussed that the hills or the mountains are places where Yahweh had regularly revealed himself to his people and where he had delivered his word to them and his law to them and from where he had consistently began a new work among them. And so every pilgrim on this perilous journey to the holy city for sacrifice and for worship knows that to reach Mount Zion and to reach the city of Jerusalem, they need divine protection. And because the journey is long and perilous, they remind one another by singing the psalm together that God had consistently aided his people from the hills and from the mountains. And so if the hills are the where the help comes from, then from whom are we looking to deliver that help? Well, he says it's not just any God, but Yahweh God. Again, he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh. And this is a very important distinction in this psalm. So let's be sure not to miss it, right? So he is not calling, and we, just, we discussed this somewhat in Sunday school. He's not calling upon a regional God. Right? He's not calling upon a household God. He's not calling upon an idol like the pagan nations around them set up on the high places on the hills to worship. He is calling upon Yahweh, the God to whom our battle belongs, as Jehaziel told us in 2 Chronicles. And because our help is found in Yahweh, what this psalm then does is immediately take this out of the hands of a regional household high places God and makes this God now covenantal. And it speaks to his covenantal nature. Because Yahweh has covenanted with a chosen people by committing himself to them and by revealing his covenantal name to them, which is the name Yahweh. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Moses says this, You are a holy people to Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all of the people's who are on the face of the earth. Yahweh comes from the hills to help his chosen nation because they are a treasured possession to him. And he has revealed himself and his name to them. But then as we read the rest of these first two verses, Yahweh is not only covenantal, but he is also the maker of all of heaven and earth. Again, he says, from where I lift up my eyes to the, from the hills or to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. So just consider how this speaks to his superiority and sovereignty over every other God that every other nation can even call upon. But related to us, 
Think about how this applies to the creed that we confess together as a, as a body every single week. Because every week we proclaim together and corporately in our belief and conviction of the sovereignty of Yahweh over all of creation. Whether that creation be heavenly or earthly, whether he is sovereign over life or death, things invisible or visible, Yahweh alone is God because Yahweh alone is the creator of heaven and earth. And so this statement in verse 2, for God's covenant people, this statement excludes faith and hope in any other God or gods. And this statement of verse 2 is the basis from which our long-looked-for help that comes from the hills has the authority and the power and the dominion to be our help through the perilous journeys and struggles in life. So that is from where and from whom. And we use those really as a solid foundation to transition now from a posture of desperation and anxiety and, and hope, knowing from where and from whom our help comes, to then a posture of rest and dependence. And so we ask the next question as we look at the, at the rest of the psalm very quickly. This next question is, well, then in what form does Yahweh give us that help that we're looking for from the hills? Our help comes in the form of Yahweh then keeping or guarding or protecting his covenant people. So listen again. Well, I'll just read the last six verses. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So again, in verse 3, we just read, that Yahweh will not let our foot be moved. So as maker of heaven and earth, he has created the paths. He has created the wildernesses through which we must walk in life. Meaning, and here is how this is helpful, meaning that since Yahweh created them, Yahweh then has sovereignty over them. And so here in verse 3, we are promised that God will keep us from falling off of those paths or from getting lost in the wilderness. And then in verses 4, 5, and 6, just in quick succession, we see that God is a, Yahweh is a God who keeps his people, who guards his people, and protects his chosen people constantly and always. Verse 5 tells us that Yahweh is the shade on our right hand. Now this took a little studying, right? Because what this does is this actually speaks to Yahweh's protection from evil and danger, because we think about it, right? Why shade our right hand and not our left hand, right? I mean, the skin can still get burned, right? So, but, this, but this goes further than just simple protection. According to the Hebrew, this word for shade can also be translated as defense. So think about where you would hold a shield with your, with your arm. So with this understanding, then, Calvin comments this. He says, this idea of a shield is to teach us that it is not necessary for us to go very far in seeking Yahweh because he is always at hand and stands at our side like a shield to defend us from the enemy. And then Augustine asks a great question here, speaking of this verse. He says, does it suit God that we are redeemed but not saved? God is our creator and our guard. He is our shield. And so this imagery here 
of defense in verse 5 about the shade or the defense on our right hand continues into verse 6 when he uses this imagery of the sun and the moon. In doing so, what he is speaking of, he's metaphorically speaking to the passage of time, right? But also for defense from the scorching heat of the day, which we are about to enter into here in West Tennessee, right? But as well as the frigid cold of the night, which is very common in desert areas, right? So combining verses 5 and 6, we can understand with, ver- with verse 4, we can understand that Yahweh keeps and defends his people, and he is ever and always watchful. He never slumbers. And he never sleeps. Calvin again proclaims here, he says, although, that God, although God's people may be subjected to all of the miseries of human life, God's shadow is always at our side to shield us from every harm. And then we look at these last two verses, which are more end times focused or eschatologically focused. And we see here in these final two verses that That Yahweh's care for his covenant people extends to protect us against all evil for our entire lives. God's providential care relates to all of life, which includes our relationships and our journeys and our times of retreat and rest and worship, as well as our times of temptation and struggle and suffering. The psalmist tells us in verse 8, there is no going out and there is no coming in that God does not steward and that God does not safeguard. Instead, the extent of Yahweh's defense for his people is both now, but also forevermore or for all eternity. So then, because we are, or I am, rather, attempting to foist this practice of Lectio Divina, or divine reading, through the sermon time with the Psalms, let's connect this Christologically, and then we'll come to the table. Because doing so, again, it will help us to live in this psalm throughout the rest of the week. So these promises that are made in these eight verses are not vague promises, nor are they merely academic truths that we can just debate. These are immediately applicable truths that we can apply to our lives and our Christian walk from the moment we leave this room for the rest of the week. Not only individually, but corporately, especially as we continue through the season of Lent. So notice, though, first, very frustratingly, at least this was for me. This might not be for you, but for me, this was very frustrating. While we should pray for, rightly pray for, divine protection that God promises within this psalm, the psalmist, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, does not clarify how God will provide that protection. That's frustrating for me, right? I want details. (laughs) But what this tells us, though, is that God may decide to guard our lives and protect our lives and our steps in the pathways and in the wilderness in ways that we may never fully understand or comprehend. But Paul reminds us in Romans 8, he says that we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purposes. So the point to contemplate and to meditate on this week is that for the believer, individually, and for the church, corporately, God's protection is not only promised, but it is confirmed. That's what this psalm reminds us of. But we can see that God's protection is promised and confirmed with the themes and the details that we've just drawn out. As we pray and meditate on this psalm throughout the rest of Lent, 
we ask the question, what hills or what mountains do we look to for divine help? Well, the psalmist tells us that our help comes from Yahweh. And we, as the church, we proclaim that our help has come from Yahweh in Christ Jesus. In Christ, God came down from the hills to covenant with us and to help us and to keep us and to defend us. And these, these, while these, you could be metaphorical with this, these don't have to be metaphorical hills. We can take literal hills to understand this. Like ancient Israel, we can look to the hill of Mount, Zion, uh, Mount Sinai for the revealing of Yahweh and his covenant and his law. But in Christ, we can also look to the hills, quote-unquote, of the Mount of Beatitudes for the law of God, or the Mount of Transfiguration to see Christ in all his glory, or the Mount of Olives, or Golgotha itself for the revealing of God and his covenant and his law and his way of salvation. Our help comes from Yahweh, the covenant God who has covenanted with us by sending the Son to identify with us in his incarnation, to identify with us in our temptations, to identify with us in our sufferings, so that we can identify with him and partake of his inheritance. We look to Christ, who is also creator of heaven and earth. John tells us in his gospel, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. Paul tells the Colossians in Colossians 1, for by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then in the letter to the Hebrews, the author writes this. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. In Christ, Yahweh keeps us as his covenant people, and keeping is the work of a shepherd, meaning that through Christ our foot shall not be moved. Through Christ we have a defense from evil for our entire lives because he neither sleeps nor slumbers, but lives always to make intercession for those who are his. In Christ we lift up our eyes from the, to the hills for help from Yahweh, And we can take heart because Yahweh has delivered that help in the Lord Jesus. In Jesus, Yahweh keeps us both corporately and individually. And this too is definitely a work of shepherding, not only for the one sheep who gets lost, but for the 99 who do not. Jesus tells us in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. But I have other sheep that are not of this fold, so I must bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So as we journey with Christ through both the wilderness of Lent as well as the wilderness of life, we can have confidence that God does protect and defend us as his people. And Lent, like all of life, is a wilderness season and a season of testing. But we must remember that God is here and his spirit is with us. 
And as we share with the son in his suffering and we identify with him in his death and we know him in the power of his resurrection, with joy and gladness, we can take up a posture of rest in the finished work of Christ. Amen.